y'all, and welcome to Best Behavior Creative Club. This is a podcast where we talk to, uh, it's the people that make things and the people who make things happen. Uh, I am your host, Chris McAdoo, Creative Director at Design Sensory, and I'm joined, as always, by Brad Carpenter. Brad, how you doing, buddy? Hello, Chris. I'm doing good, man. Just, you know, trying to stay busy. And say positive, because I'm just stuck in this home office with all of my kids all day long. You know how it is. It is. Uh, it's it's a pretty uh, interesting feat, because Brad has 47 children. That's true. It's true. For, 48. 48 children. <laughs> 48 as of last week. <laughs> but it's interesting. Uh, this is one of the series of uh, podcast interviews that we are doing from our home studios. It's April 29th, 2020. So... We are on week six of remote work, um, so I'm in my home studio, Brad is in, in, in his, and we're in the middle of, um, well, the COVID-19, the pandemic that has had society, uh, you know, uh, we've, we've been sheltered in place for quite some time, and uh, in the next few days in Knoxville, Tennessee, there's going to be a gradual reopening um, of, of some of these businesses and places that um, is going to be interesting. Um, but we're all dealing with these unprecedented times. And every single episode that I've done during this time, that word comes up. And I always say that I'm still just waiting for things to be precedented again. because I never heard that word before. Um, but we're excited today to bring um, to bring you guys one of the I mean what I would say is just outstanding leaders um, in the Knoxville um, business and hospitality restaurant community um, for years. Uh, Brian Struts and Adopo Pizza downtown have looked at the way that they do business as a way to engage the community and build something just really amazing. Um, and they have done, um, they've just done a really interesting job of pivoting during this whole experience. So we're going to dig into that and we're going to dig into what makes Brian and a business like Adopo tick, right? Um, and uh, also, a quick production note, because I am recording from my home studio every few minutes, you may hear, you may not, uh, a lawnmower going by. Because the scene... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. There's a really loud lawnmower right outside my window. <laughs> the city did not consult me about when they were going to uh, uh, mow the median. So anyway, um, Brian, uh, welcome to Best Behavior Creative Club. Well, Chris, Brad, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm a little tongue-tied, but you've buttered me up with such nice compliments. So <laughs> thanks. I'm very, uh, very gracious of you. And like you said, you are doing this in your home. I'm doing this in my car. And we are in the South. So every 30 seconds, you may hear me honk my horn. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, before we dig into kind of the present uh, situation and, and Adopo and, and kind of what you guys are doing. I want to understand a little bit more about what uh, kind of where you got your start. Um, being a, a, a chef or a creator, uh, you know, for instance, did you grow up, you know, um, surrounded by that? Or is this something you, you know, you came to, uh, to pick up? Let us, yeah, kind of fill us in on, uh, on where you came from, man. Yes. The origin story, I guess. So I grew up in South Florida. I lived there for 10 years. My family moved to Knoxville when I was 10. And I attended private school in Florida, 
and then public school in Tennessee. Um, when I was about nine, I had an uncle come and stay with us for a week while my parents were out of town and he loved to cook. He cooked every meal, every night for that week. And honestly, if I had to pick one moment, I would say it was that moment where like the idea of cooking as a hobby or a profession or just something uh, was first implanted in me at a really young age. Um, where I started to take that into my own was later in life, like in high school, for example, I jokingly say it was a really easy way to get a girl to go on a date with you when you were like 16 years old. You'd say, hey, I, can I cook you dinner? And, you know, most high school girls would think that was pretty cool. So I use that as like a <laughs> lame tactic, but ironically ended up marrying uh, love of my life, Jessica Struts, who also is my partner in the restaurant. And I knew her in high school, we went to separate high schools and both worked at the same job. We worked at a Greek restaurant. I was 16, she was 17. And then I had a really big crush on her and used to make her little pretzels and pizzas because I worked at their wood-fired pizza oven actually. And she was this girl that I like doted on. And several years later, after graduating high school and into college, I bumped into her and we both found out that we had a lot in common and started dating slowly after the course of the year and then uh, ended up marrying about five years later. Um, that's sort of the story of us, but food has been intertwined with all of that. Career day in high school, I dressed up as a chef slash restaurant owner. So I knew even ah. back then I wanted to own my own restaurant. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of cool to be able to say that. Your guidance counselor would be proud, man. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. They probably were telling me I was an idiot for even wanting that because even back then there was no real cachet for being a chef and it was just mostly looked at as a blue collar um, industry. And well, anyway, so yeah, my mom loved to cook. I loved to cook. I had an uncle that loved to cook. Um, it was great for getting dates, but ultimately it's just something that I did have a lot of passion for. And in yeah. college, I studied abroad in Italy, um, studied Italian for a summer. Then when my wife and I got married, we bought one-way tickets and went a lot. Uh-oh. I lost you. I lost you, Brian. Uh-oh. Hey, Brian. Lose you guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you're back. You. You're back. We'll just tell everybody that you were, we just tell everybody you were in a profanity-laced car ra road rage. <laughs> okay. But if my wife or my mother-in-law hears this, I was not. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you were talking about how you guys had taken a one-way or gotten a one-way ticket, and then it uh, and then it cut out. So we left and lived in Italy for about six months and worked on different farms and got to cook at a lot of different places for fun, and it was just a very romantic start to our marriage together. Oh, so wow. wow. So how long, I think I might've missed it. How long did you live in Italy? We were there about six months. Uh, we had six hoped months. to be there, be there longer, but some life situations happened with our families that very quickly pulled us back home. And then when we got home, I was looking for a job and I started cooking at Blackberry Farm. And that was huh. like uh, culinary school for me, so to speak. And I was there for two years where I worked for many of the other people in town that now own and operate restaurants so that was like the door that led me into actually being able to open a restaurant one day well that's that kind of gets into a cool experience though about um learning on the job 
Because I would think, listen, man, your version or, you know, my version of can I cook you dinner, um, you know, to get girls in high school uh, and in college was essentially like sitting at a party playing the intro to Pearl Jam's Yellow Ledbetter, you know, (laughs) so, (laughs) but um, I had, uh, but, but what, what you're doing there is really interesting because you and your wife were willing to take a chance, right, on a trip um, to Italy. You were willing to get out of a comfort zone, and you were willing to, it sounds like, put yourself um, in a place to experience things that you otherwise wouldn't have. So you probably got to um, ask people a lot of things and cook, literally cook a lot of things that you never would have before. And then getting into... um, like getting into some place like Blackberry Farm, um, which is the top of the top, you know, um, that's learning on the job, right? Talk to me a little bit about, um, talk to me a little bit about taking that love of cooking, um, that love of, of maybe it's hospitality, maybe it's bringing people together and combining that with what it takes. Um, you probably learned a lot at Blackberry about what it takes to take that and combine it with, um, <clears throat> entrepreneurship or running a business or running a schedule, you know, as a chef. Um, talk to me a little bit about that and how you, how you learned to approach that. Okay. So it'll probably be a roundabout answer, but I promise I will get there. <laughs> what I used to really like about cooking or what I thought I liked was the actual cooking and the preparing of the food. And while I still do like that, it took many years of introspection to understand that it was more about the service service of it the hospitality of it taking care of people doing things for people Um, psychologically you could maybe some people would attribute that to being the youngest child in a family of girls so i'm the only boy my sisters were all older i have a very much a people pleasing personality and i like people to like me and i want to make people happy i think that translated into my hobby or ability to cook food. So those two went very like very much parallel. And as we opened the restaurant and I got to actually see and sort of feel the energy in the room where everything we were creating was being consumed by our guests and they were immediately giving us feedback, like for the most part, positive feedback. But that feedback loop is just so essential to our industry because it, it like, gives you this these short-term dopamine rushes on a daily basis and it's really it's like a drug for better or for worse so what what used to be me loving food just the preparation of it has morphed into this like soul satisfying act of serving others and that sounds really grandiose but it's my best way of saying it um, in terms of your question about melding entrepreneurship with a culinary skill or a hospitality mindset That's a really complicated subject, which we could devote a long time to. And one thing that our industry, my industry, the restaurant industry fails at a lot is talking Mm -hmm. about money and talking about entrepreneurship. It's that most chefs don't have a background in accounting or finance or business. And it really handicaps them and their ability to to grow in a sustainable way as a business. They, they, you know, they know Mm -hmm. they've got one, one side of the coin. I have a degree in, in business and marketing. Uh, I also spent some time working in personal finance and have general knowledge of bookkeeping and accounting. So those, those things really like 
have given me a huge advantage in our ability to like be a smart, savvy business. Um, I guess what I would say is I know how to structure debt. And when we opened the restaurant, I knew that I didn't want to give up any equity. That was really important to me just because of my understanding of the principles of equity and ownership and where real value comes Mm -hmm. into play in the long run. So we, you know, I built a, a debt instrument where we found people that would be willing to give us money in exchange for a, a pretty good rate of return. And we deferred principal payments the first year. So it really helped us out with cash flow. I kept our, uh, I kept a pretty wide uh, operating um, capital budget, like a working capital budget. So I knew I wouldn't run out of money. Um, I, I put a lot of attention on the metrics of our business is what I'm really getting at. Something that... Yeah often overlooked and I think that is what has single-handedly allowed us to thrive in the local restaurant team. Well, talk to me about those, those metrics and man, you are singing, you are singing my tune because just like chefs, um, a lot of artists, a lot of makers, musicians, writers, those kind of things, um, they don't have those business backgrounds. And in fact, sometimes are actively dissuaded from getting them, right? And so even though you don't mean to, uh, you graduate as a, uh, um, you know, as, as a painter or you as a chef or, or any of these other things, um, and you are now a small business owner, right? Um, so being able to define what success looks like, both in the short term, um, like you're talking about uh, structuring your debt so that it's you know interest only for X number of of months or years to maintain cash flow and maintain liquidity, um, which I just think is uh, this is the kind of stuff people I think yearn, just yearn and, and and they want to hear. Like you're talking about the metrics of your business. What are some of the things that you pay attention to? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack with each one of these questions. So just cut me off if I get wordy. And I say that a lot because there is so much to pay attention to. Um, and there are some of the things I want to say about what you just said. So you were, Please. you mentioned before you asked that question, how, um, what was it? The, uh, well, what I want to say is you, you talked about a lot of your colleagues and friends and artists are almost dissuaded into understanding the business aspect of things. Well, I would, I would add to that by saying there's almost a social currency uh, to young creative types by rejecting the, the business mindset. Like when you're young, you don't want to be, you don't want to appear as a sellout. You don't want to look too right. square. So you focus on those things that give you social currency, which is like the creative process. And so by virtue of that, you, lose out on a lot of really valuable things that you're forced to learn later at the expense of yourself and others. And we call that expense like the idiot tax. Um, when I was building our business plan and um, costing everything out in our budget, I, I like, I just multiplied our entire startup budget by, I think it was 15% because I knew that I was going to be wrong and I didn't want to learn that the hard way. So I built in a buffer, a real life buffer for us. And because it happens, even people who spend time understanding those metrics, like they may they make mistakes that are costly mistakes. And then for many startups, they end up not ever starting up because of that idiot tax, so to speak. Um, what you said about metrics and things that I pay attention to, a big one for restaurants is revenue per square foot. Um, I don't even know why I answered that because that's not something I pay attention to. But what I pay attention to is what we call a prime rate. So in a retail setting, you have your cost of goods and you have your cost of labor. With restaurants, those are our two single greatest 
variables of overhead, cost of goods and your cost of labor. In a restaurant, labor is your most expensive thing and the cost of materials is the second most expensive thing. So for us, oh, okay. we have a prime rate that we, we try to hit a 58% gross. So, you know, we have, we didn't have a manager the first year and a half. It was just me and then my wife. And then eventually we groomed someone to really start taking over the business. And now we have him track a prime rate and offer quarterly bonuses relative to the success of that. Because for me, I think making money in a restaurant is actually very simple, simple in terms of how you can calculate it. Not necessarily simple in the execution. That's obviously a different story. But a prime rate is the combination of your cost of labor and your cost of goods. And like I said, we shoot for a 58% prime. Most restaurants shoot for 60. If you're doing under 60%, you should be profitable. And if you're not profitable, it could be because you're terrible at managing all your fixed costs and your overhead, or your rent is too expensive. You know. Um, right. And you get to that prime rate by pricing your food appropriately. And Price is a weird thing because everybody responds to price differently. You know, if you price your food really cheap, you alienate people that are willing to spend more. If you, if you price it too high, you alienate people who can't afford to buy it, um, but also philosophically think it's too expensive. So like there's this weird sliding scale of what do I price my food out? And for us, we simply price our food at a way that puts our food cost at, it'll, at a level that hits a 58% prime. And we value huh. labor, we value our employees, we pay them well. We know that in the long run, if we want, if we need them to stay working for our restaurant for longer than a year, which is probably the restaurant average, they need to be making more than most restaurants pay. So uh, I guess this is one of those tangents I went on, but the metric I pay most attention to is a prime rate. No, man, that is, again, it's a, it's a, it's a tangent that everybody needs to hear. And I think it's, um, you're also saying something really important there that ties into even how you kind of started um, Adopo is that you are pricing appropriately and paying appropriately, right? Like, you're not trying to shortchange your customers, you're not trying to shortchange the people that work for you, because I mean, I, I would say, you know, more than anybody, the price of acquiring a customer or an audience is, you know, X number of times more than satisfying an existing customer. Same thing with like, once you find somebody that you love to work with, um, you know, they do a great job, you know, that they are conscientious, you know, that they care about your business, replacing that person because they are not treated appropriately or, or, you know, um, or paid fairly is a very expensive um, you know, that's an expensive undertaking. So that's just all about taking care of people. And then like, uh, making the appropriate investments, um, you know, because Adopo is very much driven by its surroundings and by the makers surrounding it. Um, forest with fork design. Um, we've got, uh, you know, Justin Polk did the concrete, um, uh, Richard Foster, you know, doing the, doing the plans. And so you've got a lot of local investment on the front end. Um, so I guess, where did the idea, um, where did the idea to operate at that level come from? Cause you're talking about your love of service and your love of bringing people together, the idea of Adopo, how you set it up. Um, where did you, where'd you come to that idea? Ah, oh, man. So really, I hate to sound reductionist, it's like, but I think it's it's really it's a matter of having a long term focus versus a short term focus. And some people might not admit 
that they're thinking in the short term, but like public businesses, publicly traded, publicly traded companies that are operating for the pure benefit of their shareholders and stakeholders. I, I feel like they have a tendency to become short term thinking businesses because their their mm-hmm. sole purpose is generating generating a return on investment. And while I think that's important, uh, I'd rather be a business that is around for 60 years. I want our restaurant to be an institution because the industry is hard enough to succeed at. Um, if you position yourself as a trend, it's just going to be harder. So we made the decision early on. I made the decision that I wanted our business to have a long-term mindset, um, both in the culinary industry uh, in the labor market as employers, but also as buyers um, in relationships with our vendors and with our customers and with mm-hmm. you know our farmers, distributors, with everybody. And so that just comes down to my philosophies in life. And gosh, I could go back even further and say the golden rule, like treating other people the way you want to be treated. We really are guided by principles that we believe in. And because we have 100% equity of our business. We're allowed unilaterally to make those decisions that we think are right. So when you ask me about why or how did we come to the decision of uh, positioning our business to be like a part of the fabric of the community, I would more say like, who wouldn't want to do that as a local yeah. independent restaurant? I think if you're not thinking that way, you're 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 a little like short-sighted. And so while at, at risk of sounding overly manipulative, because like, I don't want to be, I'm not that calculating. Like I get a lot of very rich, deep, meaningful, like feelings from the relationships that we have with the people that have helped build out the restaurant. Forrest is our neighbor and now Forrest is our tenant. So he actually pays rent to us. We bought our building um, about a year and a half ago. And so he's our tenant. Oh, cool. But because, yeah, because we included him early and got him a nice, good fabrication job with all of our tables, paid him on time, and we're good stewards of that relationship, he's now returning that favor as being a good tenant to us as landlords. And our other neighbor, Justin Polk, were bookended by these two makers. It would be really... <laughs> yeah silly of us to not use that to our advantage and our advantage meaning like they have talent they're sharing a wall with us we're going to be next to them in perpetuity as business owners so like let's let's make an arrangement that works for all of us it's a mutually beneficial thing and in terms of the wall that's in our dining room and you, you may eventually get to it but we have this big wall that our oven is sitting up against and it was a blank wall for the first couple months we were open And, uh, you know, we also use a lot of different local graphic designers to help us with T-shirts and with art graphics on the exterior, the interior signage and all that. But this one guy that we use a lot for that wall, he and I were just sitting there looking at it. Like, what can we put on it? Can we put on a mural? And we were talking about all the options. And at that point, I had already started digging into this idea of like becoming a fabric of the community by including the community. And I just said to him, what if we just put the names of all of our neighbors and businesses that we bought from on the wall? Like, let's just give them free advertising. Let's do that. And he loved it. And we drew up a plan. And our initial names were just people like on our street, maybe some like local breweries we're buying from. And since then, that wall has exploded. And it's almost this like... uh, living, breathing saying that, you know, when a business closed down, the name gets taken off the wall. It's not meant to immortalize people. It's simply meant as a way of like a tip of the hat to all those people that we respect because we can empathize with their situation as business owners. I mean, I think that speaks to uh, just being able to think about that long-term mindset and then 
like that is not only community, but that's like that's business leadership. That's not being afraid to um, come to things with a point of view and be willing to like support that community, which is just um, I love how you said like the golden rule, like who wouldn't do that? Right. Like who wouldn't want to be part of that community? Um, well, and, and that's a good sort of opportunity to 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 kind of focus a little bit on present day stuff. Right. Um, because uh, during the um, the shutdown on, I guess it was March 16th, um, you guys straight up shut down um, and then opened or reopened several days later with a completely uh, pivoted uh, business model that has been, from what I understand, man, um, that it has been very successful. Um, so can you give us a little bit, it kind of, kind of tell me what was your thoughts when you heard the shutdowns were coming? Um, what, what was the impetus behind you guys closing your doors, reorienting and reinventing? Yes. First of all, uh, thanks for being so prepared. Like, you know, more about our business than most people. So like, I, that's not lost on me. Um, that it's very kind of you to, to know as much information as you do. So good job in whatever you're pre-production was, or maybe you simply just follow our business. So that's very humbling. Um, yeah, on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day was our first day closed. And leading up to the closure, there was this really palpable fear that existed downtown where a lot of us as restaurant owners and bar owners and shop owners already communicate with each other just as friends and peers and we share information. But leading up to the closure, we had really acutely felt this social burden of like, we're the ones that are going to have to make this decision because nobody was making it for us. And we were all like pleading with the, you know, the county and the city mayor's offices and saying, listen, like, just give us a mandate, give us some leverage in the event that if we do close, we can at least use that mandate as leverage for our insurance companies or for our vendors or for our fixed costs. Cause we're going to have to do a lot of really like, some heavy lifting to, to save our businesses. And so we right. never really got that in a timely way. And most of the restaurants downtown ended up closing on their own. And it was very, very tough. When we closed, I did not have a plan yet for reopening. It was just, we have to close. And the very last day on March 16th, we did takeout only. And I remember sitting there talking with my cooks and our staff and I asked all of them what their opinion was like what do you think we should do and not from uh, I'm afraid to make this decision and I told them that I'm like this this is not you all making the decision I just want to hear what you think and and everybody was unanimous in saying I just don't know but one person said I really think we should close and I I put a lot of value on that person's willingness to be honest with me because he knew that if we were to close, that would mean he wouldn't have a job and he wouldn't have income. And, and, and he was still willing to say that. And that I think is where the light bulb went off in my mind that there's something really big going on here, despite what we're hearing from everyone else. And like at the, after that moment, because we were going to open our dining room on that night, we decided to just do takeout and then to make that our, our last night. And we had a very busy night. We sold a ton of pizzas, takeout only, but it just was like, there's people coming in and out of the restaurant. If we're supposed to close, this isn't yeah. right. It, it was like uh, drinking information from a fire hose about what was right and what was wrong, or ethical, da, 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 da. And then in those next eight days when we were closed, 
we had really the first two days we just checked out like a lot of business owners did like people that own restaurants work so much as it is that when you get a moment to like turn everything off your body kind of shuts down it like powers off so we like hibernated for a couple of days and didn't even think like what are we going to do then after that we came out of the stupor and then just started to organize our thoughts and we had already been investing in some of an expansion in our building we bought a new oven we've been building a private dining room in our back we expanded our kitchen um, to do a new style of pizza roman style which is the style that we ended up opening up as and we weren't ready to do this or to unveil this but we had played around with it maybe we were like 75 percent operationally so we had we were sitting around our table my wife and i and our manager and a good friend of ours who's um works for a risk assessment company that is just a very very intelligent guy that his career is built off of assessing and preventing risk for large organizations and entities like the coast guard for example and he was in there telling us about his thoughts like about everything and he was sharing us his professional experience about pandemics because he studied them and we, we floated the idea to him about reopening as our new pizza style, a style that translated better for takeout. It was crispier. It held up better in a pizza box operationally. The labor was a little bit more efficient. And he, he really said, I think that's what you should do. And him being so confident in our idea also pushed me to the edge of thinking, all right, well, then let's do this. So we did it. And then the next four days we just rebuilt everything in our operations moving equipment to the back moving tables like separating all these things in the dining room buying a bunch of disposables building a new menu building an online ordering platform rebuilding the website and these are all things that i did i managed the website myself i managed our pos like it was me on my computer and running around and carrying things just like nonstop all day long until we opened and we had no idea what the demand was going to be like i mean we know that we have some some degree of like cloud and influence in the local food community but you just this is like you said earlier unprecedented times that was pretty funny i, I would love for us to go back to precedented times myself um, <laughs> <laughs> but the uh when we opened we we had we sold out in 90 minutes and we were like oh my gosh this is crazy you know we just did like a few hours of normal revenue in like 90 minutes so the next day we doubled our output and we we did twice as many pizzas and we sold out in like 20 or 30 minutes like think about that we doubled our output and sold out in a third of the time so we knew that like we had something at that point yeah which was wild and then from there uh from there uh, the next really four weeks was just spent tweaking every single thing about this operation um, tweaking the way we communicate what it is to our staff the what it is to our guests uh, how our guests are able to get it, how to order it, what to do when they have it. Like, it was just like putting out a ton of content, a ton of information in many different channels. I was like daily changing our voice message on our phone. So when people called and I wasn't there to answer and tell them everything, they could at least hear it there or a landing page on our website or like, um, things on our Instagram page or Insta story or Facebook, all this stuff. And tweaking the pizzas, refining the dough. We had a day where our dough was a disaster and it was a Friday, a busiest night for a pizzeria. And I decided not to open. I decided not to open because I wasn't happy with the quality of our product. And I made a post about that. And obviously that post, you know, there was a a degree of 
gamesmanship there because if I'm going to close down and sacrifice this revenue, then the customers need to know why. And why mm-hmm. is because we still care about quality. And so we put that out there and it was the right decision. It was great. And it just further showed that we care about what we're doing. Um, and like I said, it was just constantly tweaking this new system to better it, to make it more efficient. And because um, we don't know how long this is going to last. Well, and I think what you're what you're doing there is you're speaking to um, you're speaking to so many things, man. But what I what I really hear here is um, you're talking about that love of service, that love of hospitality, and what I'm hearing here is paying it's the um, the attention to de- the attention to the details. Right. Um, I'm just pulling up, uh, you know, Roman pizza, Roman style pan pizza designed for a quick reheat. Right. Like even saying those things in particular to let you know that things are different now. This is a different kind of product Um, and committing to it. I think that for a lot of of business owners, artists, creators, all of that, um, people people long for a degree of certainty. Right. and to be a creator, the business owner, if it's a restaurant or, or, or whatever, um, I think that one of the biggest strengths that we can bring to the table is kind of putting that to the side sometimes. Um, you know, like you said, like when you shut down, you didn't have a big plan. And as this, as this has unfolded, you have introduced new products, new ways of doing things, but you've been, you guys have been open to change. When somebody has a good idea, you run with it. Right. Um, And then also being um, uh, being like totally focused on that big original concept of of taking care of people and like shutting down on the biggest night of the week because you felt like you couldn't take care of them to the level that you want to. I think that speaks to personal character, but it also speaks to the character of a business. That's long term stuff, you know, Um, and kind of. Speaking of long term, to we'll we'll segue and, and close kind of start to close things out here. Um, but talking about long term is what is next? Um, you know, for you guys, I know we're still in this. Um, for those of you listening, on May the first begins the first of our sort of twenty eight day unfolding process, phased unfolding process, um, opening process, where some folks are. you know, opening under, um, under restrictions. Some folks are staying, um, takeout delivery. Some folks are remaining closed. Um, and then that'll, you know, continue for several months. Where do you guys see yourself or have, or have you, you know, made those plans yet? Yeah, we have. And, um, we, that, that's what's on our plate right now is orchestrating the reopening and how we do that, um, efficiently, effectively, profitably, but, above all else at this time with like public safety in mind. So the city and the county have agreed mutually to allow restaurants to open on May 1st at 50% capacity. And that Mm -hmm. is going to be for 28 days. And it's going to be, there are different phases to these reopenings that involve different types of businesses as well over the course of these phases. And so us as a full service restaurant, we are technically allowed to open on May 1st at 50% capacity. Now that sounds I guess to the casual observer, like, all right, that's great. You get to open again. But what's unfortunate about it is restaurants just, they can't exist as a 50% operation. Not many can. Overhead's far too high. Labor is far too high. 
to do that because you still need just about the same amount of people to cook and prepare the food uh, minus a couple of bodies. Your labor is going to be way too high at 50% capacity. Like you're, you're, it's risky and it might not be profitable. So a lot of restaurants right now are like, you know what, we're either going to stay closed or we're going to continue doing our takeout operation for a little bit longer because we don't see half capacity working for us right now. We will be hemorrhaging money if that's what we do. So Mm -hmm. that's one fear. And another fear is that there are social consequences to being overly eager right now in a progressive area. And we're downtown. If you look at the city and the county of Knoxville, like it's supposed to be apolitical, but the city's liberal and the county's, you know, Republican, conservative, like those are obviously generalizations and that's not true for everyone. But County restaurants are going to be chomping at the bit to open on May 1st. And, and I don't think that's a problem philosophically. I just think that if you compare the city and the county, the city is going to be slow to open the, the restaurants and the county is already quick to. We've seen it. And it was the same way when we closed. So we have to be looking out for our the social implications of our business as it relates to the city, because that's where much of our business comes from. So like if I were to be very eager to open on the first, there would be blowback from our customers because they don't think we should be opening. Like this is real, this is real talk. I'm being very transparent with you all and saying this, like that's the thing yeah. that all business owners are considering right now, in addition to whether or not it's safe, but we're not scientists. We're not public health experts. We're all given the same stuff you all are given. We're just trying to make <laughs> the right decision that doesn't, you know, sink our business and eliminate our livelihoods and the livelihoods of our staff in the process. So, we, our business, our plan is to not open on the first. We're going to keep doing curbside online ordering as long, really as long as we can until we can open up at a greater capacity. Um, that being said, we were expanding into our building and we do have an extra dining room that we can use for it. So in theory, if we're able to finish our construction project in a timely way and get our new CO and increase the overall capacity of our business, our, our new 50% capacity will be very similar to our previous 100% capacity, mm. if that makes sense. So, and in, now, in, uh, yeah, so what that does for us is that we, we're in a unique position where we can actually hit our pre pandemic numbers using a greater space. And since we own the building, we don't, you know, we're, we're paying the same rent on that. And we do, of yep. course, have some bills that we have left over from the construction project where we were anticipating more revenue on top of that. But it still gives us a fighting chance to consider reopening earlier than some other businesses. So our tentative plan right now is on May 15th to reopen our dining room at half capacity in both dining rooms and spread all of the tables out in a really safe way, according to all CDC guidelines. Um, since we reopened as a takeout operation, all of our staff has been wearing masks every all day long, back of house, front of house, everybody, gloves, masks, regular hand washing, replacing of gloves, hyper sanitation of services, all surfaces, door handles. Like I'd like to think that we did a really good job of handling the the health safety aspect to this. And that's all going to move forward into the reopening. But what I don't know and what other restaurants don't know is like what our customers are going to think about that. So we're all just sort of waiting who's going to be the guinea pig to do this. And we know that that guinea pig faces both risk and reward, right? The, the reward is a financial one, but also possible more social currency, where if, you're, if your guests think they made the right decision, then that's just going to further create brand value in the eyes of the guests. So, like, if you, if you look at all the Instagram pages of the popular restaurants downtown and bars, many of them are all saying the same thing. They're all saying, 
yeah, we're not going to open on the first. We're going to let this ride out a little bit longer because we're all waiting to mm-hmm. see what happens like the rest of the world. It's an interesting so. time to, man, dude, it's, it's an interesting time to be, I mean, you know, just in business and to have to balance, you know, like you're saying, there's your, um, your financial health, your employees, all of that with literal public health. You know, and um, I think you're hitting the nail on the head for so many people like I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. So there's a lot of information coming at us that we have to we've got to trust. (laughs) We've got to trust somebody. Right. Um, But erring on the side of public health and public caution, I think, is the right way to go. And but that speaks right back to you taking care of your people, man. That's you taking care of your your staff. That's you taking care of your customers. And that's everyone taking care of their community in the best way that they know how. Um, so for uh, uh, to kind of go out, I, I do want to ask, um, for somebody out there, let's say they're a, a, a aspiring, um, you know, a, a chef or someone that's in that hospitality industry, um, and let's say they're a young person, right? They're they're trying to figure out their way. Um, what would you give? What would you tell somebody that wants to learn to do these things the right way? Yeah, what would I tell a younger version of me or someone like me? Sure. <laughs> I if you like to cook and you think you want to make money doing it, I would first say go get a job in a restaurant and go get paid to cook. Like that's kind of step one. Go get paid to cook. Go get paid to do what you think you want to make money doing for the rest of your life. If, if you put, the longer you put that off, like the worse you're going to be like, you just do that right away and then mm-hmm. come back to me and we'll finish, then we'll finish the conversation. Cause that, you know, time is money and I'm not going to give you two hours of my time. If it turns out you don't like cooking for money. <laughs> so that's what I would say. Then they'd come back and they'd say, all right, yeah, I like cooking for money. And I'd say, okay, do you want to own a restaurant? And they said, yeah, sure. Okay, great. Well, then you need to go get an associate's degree in accounting or go put in 60 hours of a university somewhere, a community college where you learn about accounting. Go learn that right now. And don't just read a book, like learn it, have an instructor walk you through the tenets of bookkeeping and paying taxes and managing a business. Mm-hmm. Learn that and then come back to me and we'll talk. And it's like, all right, if they're willing to do that, then we have the next phase of the conversation and we can talk about more big picture stuff like marketing and branding and style and taste. Um, which I think people always do the reverse of people are like, I've got this great idea for a roast beef sandwich and I want to start a restaurant. And it's like, well, we're putting the cart before the horse here. So let's like start over and go back to the basics because I do think people need to have that long-term mentality. So that's why I ask some of the really easy, basic underlying questions. Um, and if all that they pass those tests with flying colors, they love to cook. They love to cook for money. They're happy being on their feet all day. They, they've learned about accounting. They want to open a restaurant and it's like, all right, now let's find a way to make that happen. Do you want to own it all yourself? Do you want to have someone else own half of it? Do you want to take personal financial risk by taking on debt? Like, what are you willing to stomach? Do you have any rich uncles or aunts or grandmothers that are willing to invest in you? You know, like how much are you willing to lose? And then it's just this very fluid conversation. So I don't even know if I answered your question. Um, so many people <laughs> no, backed their way into this industry. No, I think that's a great man. That is a great answer, and so much good information um, for everybody. And uh, for those of you who want to learn more um, about Adopo, or if you want to order a pizza, where can they <laughs> where can they go? 
they can go to our website, which is adopopizza.com, A-D-O-P-O-Pizza.com. All of our online ordering goes through the website, and you can sign up for our email list on that website, which is one of our first methods in communicating any changes in the business to customers. So that's another way of staying up to date. Well, that's great. Well, Brian, man, um, thank you very much for joining us uh, today. And I would like to say thank you to your uncle, right, who came to your house when you were nine years old and he and he cooked and he he began that journey that uh, that let you know that like cooking for people and entertaining and taking care of people is something that you wanted to do for the rest of your life. Um and, and now Adopo Pizza brings community uh, together. It brings strength and it just brings some really damn good pizza, man. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. This is uh, Brian Strutz with Adobo, Adopo Pizza, um, who has joined us today. And I want to say thank you to everybody out there who is listening. Um, we recently uh, broke the 10,000 uh, download Mark, which was great. Thank you so much. If you enjoy what you heard and here we go. If you enjoy what you heard um, and you feel like these are the kind of conversations that you want to have and that you want to share with your friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, um, you know, please, uh, please share on social media uh, where you'll find us uh, at Best Behavior Podcast all over the place. Um, as well as, man, uh, Apple, Spotify, all those kind of places. Go give us some reviews and let us know what you think. Um, anyway, we appreciate everybody's ears. Uh, and I want you to have, I want you to take these conversations that we have with these makers and with these folks like Brian. And I want you to go make something for yourself. If that's a relationship, if that's a piece of art, if it's a piece of pizza, I want you to go make something great. This has been Best Behavior Creative Club. I'm Chris McAdoo, and uh, yeah, good to talk with you guys.